But let me read it. It's Colossians 2, verses 1 to 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Okay, so let me begin with, well, it's the picture where she can show, but because of YouTube, not for too long or else we lose copyright. But, <laughs> but Corner Gas, Canadian show, about a small town, Dog River in Saskatchewan. And in it, there's a lot of things happening, but in this one episode, a young woman named Lacey owns a diner, and she's having trouble selling her dynamite chili. And so she realizes there's a gimmick, that if she simply tags on the word classic and calls it classic chili, everybody buys it. And she starts calling everything. It's a classic Reuben. It's a classic everything because the word classic suggests, you know, nostalgia and something great. So people are buying it. And eventually, Davis, the police officer, catches wind of it and says, you're just manipulating us. And she says, you're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Why don't you try some of our homestyle stew? <laughs> and he eats the homestyle stew. He loves it. And <laughs> that came to mind this week because I see rooted in this passage the topic of community. And about 20, it started back in the 60s, but about 20 years ago or so, the term community started to be applied everywhere. Police officers who were struggling with their image as, you know, what are the police? The police are the instrument of order and authority of the state. But to soften that, they started doing community, community policing, right? Because the word community comes with a sense of, of um, it's inoffensive, it's warmer, we saw community support services change their name to that from something far more rigid. And if you just Google community church in this region, uh, the very first page of Google brings up 15 churches in Niagara Falls in the area called community church. And I'm not suggesting it's all a gimmick because churches that are community churches sincerely feel like they're part of the community, serving for the community, etc. One of the struggles, however, is... Do they really? No, I'm not knocking at churches. Does anyone, when we apply this term, what is community? Is it geography? If you're physically in the same area, that's community. Is it um, that you are for the community? Is it that you yourself as a church are a community of believers distinct from the community out there? Or all of the above or none of the above? See, the problem with using the word community is not that it's a bad word, but that it's so poorly defined. And we don't know. Like, for instance, because of my degrees, I'm part of the academic community. Well, what does that mean? I have degrees. I have no shared interests otherwise. I don't really care about these people. Right? The LGBT community. You see, the term gets applied. But do we know what we're talking about? So when this passage, one of the things I see, this base note, again, running through not just Colossians, but this passage, is the idea of a Christian community. And I think if we look, well, on the surface, but also carefully, we're going to see that Paul offers us a primer, like an intro, a 101 for what is Christian community here. It's a starting point. He doesn't say everything, but a good starting point for what is Christian community. And so he actually shows us what it is, why we need it, and how we can grow it and foster it here at Redeemer. Okay? So that's what we're going to try to do. What is community? Why do we need it? Christian community specifically. 
and how do we make it grow? So, what is it? There's a professor in England um, named Toby Lowe, and he has a very nice, concise description of what community is. A community is a group of people who share an identity-forming narrative. This means a group of people who share a story that is so important to them that it defines an aspect of who they are. Those people build, build the shared story archetypes, or the characters, of that community into their sense of themselves. They build the history of those communities into their own personal history, and they see the world through the lens of those shared stories. So what he's saying is every community, what defines a group, a community, is a story. There's a story that underlines every community. It could be the immigrant community. It could be the mothers as a community. It could be any number of things. But that story isn't just a story, but it runs so intimately, so deep in that community that they begin to make that story their own. So, for instance, in the church, it's very simple. Paul's very clear. The story and the narrative that undergirds the Christian community is the gospel. It is the Bible, the biblical story. And that story we take unto ourselves... And what makes you part of the community is not your physical presence in the building, but that you take this story and you begin to see it as your own. You see that Abraham is your father in some regard, that Israel are your people in some regard, that the disciples, when they run away and abandon Christ at the cross, is your people, your family line, and so on. And you take it into yourself. Those stories are your stories. Then you take that story and you start to see your story in it. So you no longer see the loss of a job or becoming a parent or moving across the country or whatever as just a random act, but as something woven into this larger story that God is weaving. And the story of the Bible, and we talk about it here, if you're in the foundations class we've done, you've heard it, you can summarize the biblical story in four easy stages. And we'll put the image up here of what it is. And it starts with creation. God creates everything, creates it good, and then there is a fall. Humanity eventually decides that we can do a better job, we don't need God's plan, we can have our own and make up our own, and everything falls and infects, and infects everything, as a couple weeks ago the Sermon on Alienation covered. Then from that, God doesn't let us wallow for too long. He eventually sends his son, and he begins to redeem this wayward people. And, as he, and we are now in this place of redemption between restoration and redemption. We have been saved as a church. God, we are now here announcing God's redemption and the gospel. But we also stand in a spot just before God will come and restore and renew all things. So we're in that spot. And this story, says Paul, the gospel, which he keeps hammering, as you've heard, as you've received, as you have walked in, and so on, becomes, in, he's praying that in, in Colossae, that the, it would become so, so fa- fundamental, so foundational for them, that they begin to see the story is their story and themselves in that story. And then they begin to live out that story in the world and in the community and their families and so on. And so this is what community is in the Bible. And Paul says it in verse 2 so plainly. When he's talking, he's saying, you know, I'm praying for you. And he says he prays that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love. So he's talking about the community, right? He wants their hearts to be uh, encouraged, that they be knit together and then he t- so he tells us first two things, three things here. In that verse, he tells us characteristics of a Christian community and then the goal. So the characteristics are first the heart. When, when a Jew speaks about the heart, now in Greek here it's the word cardia, where we get cardio and so on from, so heart. In Hebrew, in the Jewish mind, in, in the Old Testament, when it says the heart, you know it never says your heart. It talks about usually your kidneys. That's the Hebrew word. Or your guts. 
because that was the innards, you know? So it says, I pray with all my innards that you would be, this is the, it's with everything, that deepest part in you. So when Paul says that he prays that the church, that his church would be encouraged in their hearts, he's saying to their very deepest core that the gospel and the story and their encouragement wouldn't just be service level, but would penetrate them to the very marrow, to the innards of them, to the deepest part. Because oftentimes when we define and we talk about community, we say, and it's one of our values here at Redeemer, is community. But I don't want people to be mistaken. Community doesn't merely mean geography. Because you can be a, a part of, you could live in Niagara Falls and not be part of the community, right? And you could be, attend Redeemer and yet not be part of this community. I know I've become, my heart has been knit to my city more when I start to get offended when it's, when it's disparaged and, and I get proud when it's upheld and when it succeeds. If I hear that somebody from Niagara Falls has succeeded, do I get excited about it? Do I take it as a bit of an insult when the city is, is slagged for having, you know, being a border town and casinos and all this, you know, the things that we hear? Part of being in the community is not just geography, but buying into it, that our deepest heart begins to be knit to it. And so the Christian community is not just people who come and attend and enjoy, but people who say, this is my people, and I'm going to suffer with them, I'm going to challenge them, and I'm going to, I'm going to celebrate with them, as we did today with Matt and Amanda. This is part of what a community is. To the very heart, he says. He wants them encouraged. And then he says that they be knit together in love. And so the Christian community is typified by love. And where do we get that model from? The cross. So the love of the community of, of believers is sacrificial. It's relational. It's joyful. It's literally love that we would be knit together so that, again, when, you, when someone suffers, we all suffer. When you hear someone is having a bad day, a bad week, and listen, it's a church, somebody's always having a bad day or bad week. We enter into that suffering. We mourn with the mourners. And the foundation of this Christian love and Christian heart, then what is the purpose of it? He says, you know, I pray that you be this sort of a community. And why? He says that he literally tells us the goal of Christian community, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love. Here it is to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so, Christ is not just the unifying narrative, the story of this community of believers, but he is the goal. And so we come together and we deeply connect and we, we, we love one another so that we may know Christ better. And the goal of the community is first and foremost, it's that when he talks about assurance, we think assurance of salvation. That's not what he's saying here. It's not that's a good thing. But he's saying assurance of who Christ is, the assurance of the gospel, assurance of, of God, knowing God and who he is and how to live for him, etc. And so the community is, is bound in heart, by love, for God, for the sake of God, seeking after God. And this, is, this foundation for the Christian community is the only possible one that will allow us to endure. Because, you know, um, Aeschylus, a, a Greek playwright, he says, the foundation for community, the strong community is built, unanimous hatred. <laughs> unanimous hatred is the greatest medicine for a human community, says Aeschylus. So, listen, everybody says this, right? What unites people better than an enemy? The problem with that, of course, is, have you ever been part of a group? It could be a political party, it could be a church, it could be a family, it could be anything. But when they, are, are, when they exist solely to defend against an enemy, have you noticed they become horrible, bitter people? because they spend their whole lives attacking something, and as a result, they become attackers. 
And so they exist solely to find the next thing to attack. And so if your community is built on hatred, Aeschylus, you end up like the Greeks. No offense. Ancient Greeks, not modern. I love souvlaki. <laughs> I just made it worse. Um, so, so the foundation for community can't be hatred. That can't be what unites us. It has to be something else. And it can't even be the exact opposite. And we have a guy like Che Guevara. Before I was a Christian, if you don't know, I spent most of my life and I was on path to go study at the PhD level, Latin American history and politics. I spent a lot of time reading about this guy. And he is such a romantic character. He's a man who became a doctor and gave it all up to go fight in revolutions for liberation. But let me tell you, he is the most brutal man. And I understand he's a good-looking guy. He's a guy who gave up his doctor's life to go free people. But underlying his assumptions were terrible, terrible things. And I often talk to people who love him, and I say, it's interesting, Are you, you support the LGBT movement? They say, yeah. I said, you know, he would have put them all in concentration camps and killed them. You still love him? See? Now, Che Guevara, in one of his, his writings, he was always struggling. He, was, he helped lead the Cuban Revolution with Castro. And he, he was in awe of how the people of Cuba rallied together and became self-sacrificial for the sake of throwing off the tyranny of Fulgencio Batista, right? And he loved the spirit of Cuban revolution that caused it to grow and, and to succeed. So what he ends up doing with the rest of his life is trying to recreate those conditions in the Congo and then in Bolivia where he eventually dies. But in one of his, his diaries, he writes, you know, if only we could build this community on self-sacrifice. If we could keep that spirit alive that we saw for a few weeks and months in Cuba, if we could ex just extend that forever and keep people always that selfless, then we'd be great. You can't keep people selfless forever, Jay. So it was a fool's errand. And his attempt to do it was made what made him brutal because when people wouldn't be self-sacrificial, what did he do? You got to go. So... What is going to be the foundation that will allow a community to thrive and to not become cannibalistic and eat itself up and destroy itself? The gospel is the only one. And if they disagree, let's have a coffee afterwards. But what we see here, Paul is saying the only, the only narrative that will undergird a community and allow it to not become hateful or, or starry-eyed idealistic is the gospel. It's the cross. Because at the cross you see the fullness of humanity's evil on display, but also the fullness of grace. And so if that becomes our story that defines us, then when we are faced with people who disagree with us in the world, and there's many, and there's growing numbers, then we may be frustrated, we may struggle. But because we know that what, what our underlying ethic is, that God, the strong, became weak for the weak, that he took a beating, a wrong, wrong one, for the sake of those who he was trying to save, we then go to the world and we can see people who disagree with us and not hate them. Not rally around them and say, we must defend against this, this other, uh, this people trying to invade the church. Instead, we don't rally around defense. Let Redeemer Lord never be a church that becomes so worried about the outside that it becomes like a turtle, right? Instead, we continue to preach Christ and Christ crucified. We love Christ. And when people hate Christ, we expect it and we work for their salvation, and we work to bring them to relationship with God, but we don't hate them, Aeschylus, and we don't just kill them, Che. Instead, we love them. And the only thing that will allow us to take a beating, but also to triumph, is the cross. 
And so the foundation of Christian community has to be that. But why is it important? Why is he talking about this at all? What's the primary thing he says in this passage anyway that Christian community is for? Why do we need it? And here's the second point. And it seems strange. He says it's for unity amidst false teaching. He says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So his concern is you have to be united as a church and united on who Christ is, what he's done, and then how to live for him. That's your unity. And the reason you need it is because there's false teaching that's going to come in and plausible arguments. And now to understand what he's getting at, let me try to explain those words a little. First, he says the word deluded, which is a big word for in Greek. I won't bother saying it because I said before, Greek is like underwear, good to have, but don't show people all the time. And it's a, big, it's a compound word, two words put together. And the two words are beside logic. And the idea is don't let anyone come with words or with logic, but with words alongside them. Meaning don't let anybody trick you with something that looks logical, but has other words attached to them. And he says, it's plausible arguments. And this is another big Greek word that's only used once in the Bible. And to understand what Paul's saying, you look at other texts of the ancient world, like Plato. And Plato used this word often. And it's plausible arguments. But he always used it in a negative sense. It always meant there's popular, you know, the popular arguments. If you go out into the marketplace, the stuff you see in the media, that's, that's pithilomea. It's this, it's this big word, pithilomea, logomea. Anyway, big word. And he says, you know, this is... Uh, don't be fooled. I don't want you to be fooled and beguiled by what you're hearing popularly. And Plato says, you know, this word, you have to, don't just accept it as it is, prove it, test the word, because it's popular, but it doesn't mean it's right. And Paul's saying, your unity is required to keep you from following these popular arguments that are going to come in that look plausible, but have other words alongside them. And so that's what he's saying. But now, does Paul think we're stupid? Does he think that the church, right, is... Is that, are we just going to fall for anything? And the answer is yes, he does. And this is why. Because there's the story of the gospel, but there's counter stories all through the world trying to tell you to believe a different story about how the world is and how you are in the world. And so he says, when these other stories come, if you don't know your story really well and if you're not agreed, other stories are going to come in and find a foothold. So you need to know your story. And if you don't believe it, here's, let me use an example. In 2009, these two guys, Joshua Glenn and Rob Walker, did a, a, a fascinating study. They went to a thrift store, and they bought $128.74 worth of junk at a thrift store, including like a mug shaped like a cat, uh, just, just really junk. They then went on eBay, and they posted all these items on eBay, but one thing they did was they added a story to each one. So they added a, a story, it could be a funny story, it could be sad, sentimental, it could be interesting, but they'd say things like, this cat mug means nothing to you, but my mother bought it when she was uh, fleeing for her life in a refugee situation or something. He added, they added some fake story. That $128 they were able to sell for $3,612, the same junk that they bought at the, at the, at the store. And what they were trying to prove was very simple, that narrative and stories transform insignificant things into significant things, that stories, good and bad, shape us, that we're suckers for them to an extent. We love stories. And so Paul's saying, if you don't know your story as Christians, then when somebody comes and gives you a story that looks very close to it, health and wealth, right, or any number of other sorts of gospels that are no gospels at all as per Galatians, then you might fall for them. 
So you need to be united in what that doctrine and in love together, this community has to be. And let's use an example here. In our modern age, there's so many counter-narratives, but use one big one. It's called the oppression, uh, the oppression narrative. And this is, you've, you've, all, you've all heard it, even if you don't know it, is this. There's a sense out there that is very divisive that says, uh, the oppression narrative says this, the world is divided into oppressors and the oppressed. Either you are a have or a have not. Either you're white or you're black. You're rich or you're poor. You're liberal or you're conservative. You're gay or you're straight. You're Coke or you're Pepsi. So I slid that one in there. <laughs> but you see, the oppression narrative, what it says is the entire world is split into two things. See what it's doing? It automatically comes in and thrives and fosters division. It's based on this. It says, identify. You're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. And your whole life is set to try to relieve the burden on the oppressed and stop being an oppressor. Black Lives Matter, all these movements arrive out of the same narrative that is floating around and is trying to drag the church into it. It's true. So here's an example. If I were to tell you, and this isn't true, but let's say if I was to tell you, if you don't believe this is a, a, a problem, if I was to say, I voted for Trudeau in the last election, how does that feel? As a Christian, what do you think of your pastor if he says he voted liberal? Yeah, I know what you think. You want to kill me already, and it's not true. And this is because we are, are susceptible to this story. We believe underlying that the gospel is, is we get the gospel, but there is Carl. You can't be a Christian and a liberal. I sat once at I spoke at an event where I sat at a table with an NDP member of Parliament in Alberta, and the head of the of a ministry that was about 90 years old, and he was a staunch conservative. And they spent the whole night arguing over who how you could be a Christian and an NDP, just fighting. And this sort of a narrative. This is one example. But these narratives enter into the church, and if you don't know the gospel story, what's going to happen? Fragmentation, division will set in. And so we need to labor to avoid this entirely. And this is why Paul says doctrine and love are important. Doctrine is the gospel. You and I need to know it. You hear it, Lord willing, every week. I say the same thing all the time. Christ did it, so you don't have to. The righteous dying for the unrighteous, all of this. Because you need to know it so well that you can smell a fraud when it comes into the church. And uh, I'll use another old example. Who remembers this episode of the Flintstones? Let's see it. Remember when the aliens came? Yabba, dabba, do, right? Yeah, now you remember, you old folks like me. In that episode, aliens come and they make clones of Fred. Why you would clone Fred, I don't know, but he, they did. How did Wilma know who was the real Fred and who was the fake one? She knew Fred. That's it. She, knows, she was so certain what the real Fred looked like, sounded like, and acted like, she could smell the fake. And if you and I focus instead of on the haters and the world and the, and the division, instead focus on Christ and Christ alone. When a non-Christ comes in, you're going to say, doesn't smell right. I can't be him. And so doctrine is important. What we believe about the gospel is vital. But it's also love. Because then, when this situation comes and even people within our midst disagree with us and are, if we want to use the language, deluded and beguiled by these other things, we can correct them and rebuke them because that's what we do in love. You don't allow somebody who's wrong to continue to be wrong. You correct. But you do it in love and patience and in mercy. And sometimes you're more compassionate than people think you should be. But that's because you're trying to balance grace and truth. And this is vital undergirding. This is what Paul is saying entirely. Christian community must be firm in knowing who God is and then living him out so that it can protect many things. But one of them is 
the vision in this passage. And then how to make it. So then he goes on, he tells us how we do it. How do you build a community like this that is all at once firm in its doctrine, knows scripture, knows who God is, but also is compassionate and isn't a jerk. See, I, I know churches that have such really good, they're really good theology, but they're just full of people who want to have a fist fight about theology all the time. And they can be so off-putting, you know? They may, you know, they may be saying 100% correct theology, but they say it in such a way that you're just like, I don't like it. If your theology doesn't lead you to be more like Christ, then you're not actually studying theology. You're studying something else. And so how do we do it? And Paul outlines a number of things. I'm going to try to be as quick. Five, but very quick things. The first one seems counterintuitive. Prayer. When at the start of this passage, he says he struggles, he agonizes. Again, that word, he's used it before in this book. He agonizes for the church. And then in verse 5, he says that he is with them in spirit. You know, when Paul says, I'm with you in spirit, it's not like you on Twitter who say, I am with the Oklahoma bombing people in spirit, which basically is a, um, a nice way of saying, I'm going to do absolutely nothing for you, but I've posted this tweet so people think I am caring. Right? That's sometimes what we do. Paul's not saying that. He's not using this modern idea. When he says this, he's saying he's with them in spirit because he knows that as the people of God, he is united to them by the Holy Spirit. And so when he prays from afar for the church in Colossae, there is a Holy Spirit who hears the prayers and then brings them, as it were, and applies them to that church in Colossae so that in a very real and tangible way, he is with them in his spirit and by the spirit. So community for God, Christian community has to be forged on this sort of prayer where you and I are praying for one another. We're praying for each other at home and at work, and, and we're praying for the unity of the church and for wisdom and for teaching and for our kids and for marriages and all these things because without prayer, a community just is... is you're going to be working hard. You're going to be spending a lot of time trying to build a community, but you're going to find you're spinning your tires. So prayer is a, is a key part of building Christian community. Then in verses 6 and 7, he does three very interesting things. He says, and I think, yeah, up here, so as you desire, so pray. But then the, the, the next one, he says, as you've received Christ, so walk in him. So here he's talking about, you've received the gospel, church and Colossae. You received it from Epaphras. You've heard it from him. You've heard it now from me. As you received it, so walk in it. So consistent now. You've re- received the gospel, and now do it. Start living it out. Start now applying what does it mean to be a Christian in this world. And so live a life consistent to the gospel. So there must be, an, an, as we would say in the nerdy world, there must be a joining of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. What you think, the orthodox theology, your good theology, must now be married to orthopraxy, good practice of that theology. So he says that's a key. You must do that. You can't remain just a thinking community. You must be a living community. The third thing is, um, as you are rooted, be built up, he says. Now, if you've ever, I don't build anything, as you know, as far as physically, we're well attested here that I'm useless with my hands. But I've heard it said that men sometimes, <laughs> sometimes build houses. And when you build a house, you build a foundation. But you know what you never do is you build a foundation and don't build upon it. The foundation is only built with the intent of it being built upon and you build upon the foundation, not off to the side, not somewhere else, because to build off outside of the foundation is to build foolishly. And so when he says, as you, have, as you are rooted, founded, be built up now, he's saying you can't just leave it as salvation. The gospel isn't just to save you, it is to then make you more like Christ. 
You're not just saved, and then you're like, poof, now I'm going to coast into heaven. No, now you begin to apply the gospel and build upon the foundation by saying, now what does this gospel mean for my work, for how I vote, for how I read books, for what I eat, for what I say, for how I relate, to how I drive? And you then and begin, as a community, we start doing things like we're trying to do. Young adults, we start thinking about, hey, what does it mean to be a teacher, to be a nurse, to be a doctor, to be a, a garbage person, a person, man, garbage man, sanitation engineer, whatever we call them, I don't know. All these things, we say, now what does it mean to be a gospel-centered person in the, where God has called me? And we begin to apply it in every way. How does a Christian vote? I'm not going to talk about it here, but we do have to ask that question. How do we vote? Do we vote for a party that has no interest in Christ at all, but is pro-life? So do we forget everything else and just vote on that one? Or do we not? I'm not answering the question. I'm saying these are questions we are asked to wrestle with. That is how we build upon the foundation of the gospel. We wrestle with those questions and try our best to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian. We build upon the foundation. The fourth one, as you were taught, be established. Now this one seems tricky, but it's not. When Israel is told to establish themselves in the promised land, what did God mean? He said, first, take the land I've given you. But to be established is what we read in Jeremiah, which is, now you're going to go into exile, he says in Jeremiah. And now while you're there, establish yourselves there. Become a part of that community. Build houses, make gardens, have children. Pray for that city, because as it flourishes, so will you flourish. And to be established then is to become rooted as Christians. What does it mean to now embed where we are? When the going gets tough in Canada because you don't like the government, please don't let me hear anybody at Redeemer say, I'm going to move to Texas. In fact, just so you know, there's a guy in Texas listening to these sermons. I can't say his name because he was looking for another Redeemer church and stumbled on ours. And he emailed me and said, hey, I heard you once say Texas is assumed by Canadians to be this paradise. He's like, I assure you it's not. So just so you know, I've heard it from a Texan, just to be sure. Let's never think that. To be established is what does it mean to be to plant as Christians? To be here and to say we are, this is where God has called us and we are going to be salt and light agents of gospel change that identify, arrest, and reverse the effects of sin in our world. How do we do that? And this is what it means to be established. We build into this community. And the last thing he says, and this is where we'll close, it's abounding in love. The only possible way, the only possible way to be this sort of community that is self-sacrificing, sacrificial, relational, loving, is if we are abounding in love. And how do you become abounding in love? Let me say three things very quick. First, um, what we do when we're, being, when we're building up our faith is we're massaging the gospel into our lives, right? That's what we do. When we're being established, we then massage ourselves into our community. That's what we do. But this last part is when the gospel message is massaged into us. When that happens, you become a, thanks, a thankful person. If you're a person, and I'm not picking on anyone, please, because I don't stand up here. But I know when I have led worship before, in the old days, I was, you know, I had to play guitar. There's some people who look like, my goodness, it's like you're at the dentist here. And I'm not suggesting you all have to be jumping around dancing, but could you smile a little? Like, is there any joy in the heart of Christians? And I wonder sometimes, I'm not going to judge, you know, I mean, we have lives, hard lives, I get it. But are we a joyful people? If you really thought, as Jonathan Edwards says, you were dangling by a gossamer thread over hell, and the only thing that keeps you from falling in is the grace of Christ, if you believe that, you should, probably should be a little happy, right? Just a little, that Christ has saved you. And so, abounding in love, Paul says, this is what he prays, that you would be abounding in thankfulness. Because when you know 
that you deserve death, but you have been saved, you're going to be a thankful person. And this means you'll be thankful when you're on the losing side and when you're on the winning side. When you're struggling and when you're not, you'll have courage because the Lord is with you, as Joshua says. And so we have to be so convinced that we've been forgiven a debt that we could not pay and saved from eternal torment that we are given a reservoir of gratitude to draw on. So when things get rough, we draw on that reservoir of grace and of thankfulness, and that will drive us to not only be a community like Paul says, but that it drives us to know the one, not just to live a certain way, but we'll then want to know more about this God who saved us. And if we can start, let's start to lean in and pray for one another. Let's start to become, try to become this sort of a community that is rooted in the gospel and in love. And that way we'll become, hopefully, a thriving church for God's glory. But let's pray.